Welcome to NavChat, the show for the New Zealand orienteering and navigation sports community. Morning, Joe. Hi, Gene. So, it's still morning for you. It's just afternoon for me, but we're getting closer. I think our times are only four hours different, and shortly I'll be three hours different. So, this is <laughs> this is a good development for me. The five-hour difference was definitely making things uh, tricky. But how is it uh, in New Zealand? Things getting warmer? Yeah, they have been. In Christchurch, all the blossoms out um, at Hangley Park, which I bike through each day to get to uni. So, um, yeah, it is it is getting very nice. Um, cool. That's pretty. We've yeah. just got the uh, leaves turning, starting to turn red here in Vancouver. I just noticed that for the first time this morning. It's really sudden. Uh, All some, right. Some trees have just gone like from full green to full red in, in a matter of weeks. So that's pretty cool. Uh, but it's still still sunny and actually really good training conditions here. It's like not hot, um, but always really calm and, and fine weather. How have has your training been going recently? What are you working towards and what what's on the training diet? So I had uh, the ultra long earlier in the month, I think, the start of the month. Um, and that was sort of uh, a main goal for a few weeks. Um, but now I'm doing some road racing at the moment. So sort of been off orienteering for a little while. Um, yeah. How about you over in Vancouver? Yeah, I'm I'm training towards training i think i'm just really looking forward to having a consistent training um that's what i really like um and it's not something i can always uh, achieve I, i've definitely run into problems over, over the years and um, i'm really happy to be uh training consistently um at the moment actually uh getting a little bit tired i've just had three uh, pretty solid weeks in a row and um noticed that uh, yeah, the legs are a bit heavy, so that's a good sign that I can get my muscles tired without getting uh, in any of my tendons, which um, seem to be the things that blow up eventually. Um, with not no tendon problems at the moment, so uh, that's that's nice. And my feet are not sore when I get out of bed in the morning. You know, no kind of aches as you're um, trying to trying to mobilize each morning, which is definitely a sign. In the past, I recall times when I've been doing a lot of running that. Uh, the first few steps in the morning uh, quite quite tough on the Achilles. Have you experienced that? Uh, I'm not too sure. No, not really. I can't say. Yeah. yeah, I think some people with just like quite good mechanics and that don't get this like tendon stiffness um, just kind of don't really notice that. But yeah, some of us, we definitely notice that if we do a lot of running, then everything's very stiff in the morning or very sore for like the first few minutes and none of that at the moment. So yeah, um, that's quite good. Great. Yeah, touch wood that continues. Yeah, hopefully. And yeah, I don't really know what I'm um, training towards at the moment. Um, if if I don't train towards anything, then it's hopefully walk next year or, or something something next year. Like there's nothing nothing urgent um, on the horizon uh, for me. So I touch base with um, Makita Gelderman. She's uh, an Auckland orienteer who's done a lot of mountain bike orienteering in addition to uh, normal forest orienteering and um, is a very, very competitive um, in her in her age group on the world stage in mountain bike orienteering. So uh, it was quite good to get her perspective on, on the sport. Um, have you done any mountain bike orienteering, Joe? No, I haven't. I've planned some mountain bike road games, but I've never actually done it myself. Yeah, I'm quite intrigued by it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, she makes some, some good points about some of the benefits of doing it. So, yeah, should we check it out? Hello. Hi, Makita. Thanks for coming on NavChat as this month's guest. Sounds fancy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's, it's an honour. Um, but first, let's um, get it off our chest. You're in Australia at the moment. That's correct. Yep, yep. I am. And, yep. Yeah, and so, <laughs> yeah, how's it going so far? Good, good. We had um, had the well, the Victorian Middle Distance Champs on Saturday, and um, and then the Australian Middle Distance on Sunday. It was fantastic. It was so tricky, and the Kiwis did amazingly well. Especially some of the juniors were just incredible. It was really, really, really interesting terrain and real Warren Key special. So oh, yeah. yeah, and then the school champs has been well. There was a sprint yesterday. And a long distance today, I think relay tomorrow. 
and then we move on to the Aussie Champs Sprint Relay or Sprint Sprint Long Relay. So yeah, cool. Good fun, but it's freezing. Okay, really cold. <laughs> yeah. Um, and is this the uh, gold mining terrain? Um, yes, sort of. Yeah, mining, gold mining. Um, the Victorian Champs was on sort of yeah, but bit more. They were quite different. They're both mining, okay. but different. Hard yep. to explain without sort of looking cool. at that. Yeah, but not something that we have um, very much of uh, locally. All, no. So it is very impressive for some of the juniors to do so well. Yeah, that's that. Cool. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about mountain bike orienteering. It's something that we give a little bit of coverage, but um, not a huge amount of coverage on NavChat, given that I don't do a whole lot of it. But yep. you've been involved for many years, so. Um, can you take us back to uh, how you got involved in mountain bike orienteering and were you uh, involved as it um, started in New Zealand or were there some, some people before you who had it going? I think uh, Michael Wood was probably the pioneer um, kind of before it even took off as an international sport. Um, he kind of had a few events and uh you know, the sort of uh, men or two sand dune forests. Um, but the first thing, yeah, the, it kind of kicked off in the early two, early 2000s. And um, I know Rob went across to Australia for an event and absolutely loved it. And um, I didn't actually go for some reason that time. Um, so, yeah, initially... We kind of tried. Oh, I think the early events were trying to replicate foot orienteering, but you just did it on a on a bike instead. Um, and it's kind of evolved into more. You know, where it's riding on tracks rather than in the forest. Um, so, yeah, my my first event was yeah something in Australia. We came over for a I think it was a New Queensland champs or something, and um, yeah, it was. Pretty fun. It was the first time I travelled with a bicycle, which was interesting, but it's now easy. But um, at the time, it wasn't. And uh, yeah, it's kind of evolved, evolved from then. So it's a fairly young branch of the sport. Um, yeah, I had no idea that the earlier format, at least as it was trialled in New Zealand, tried to use off-track uh, control sites. Is that what you were saying? Uh, well. I don't really remember, but I think I think that was the case. Um, and it's it's reasonably yeah. easy in some of those sand dune forests. You can uh, ride off trail without too much of uh, of an issue. But I imagine there's a lot more yeah. getting on and getting off, and it becomes a little more broken. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's um you know the true true mountain bike orienteering as it is now is where you you know you're you're riding on tracks the whole time, so you you're going fast, which makes the navigation challenging. Um, you know. For a for a, a purist foot orienteer, you look at a mountain bike orienteering course. It's like, well, that's not that hard, is it? You know, you just go down this track and that track and whatever. Um, but yeah, you try doing that at 25, 30k an hour, and it becomes a whole lot more tricky. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, how would you describe the main challenge of mountain bike orienteering to someone who's done other navigation sports? I sort of liken it to sprint orienteering in a way because um, you're you're almost always um, restricted to riding on track. There's some sometimes you're allowed to cut or you know go between tracks, go through the forest, but depends on there's different rules of different countries and, and different areas. But the vast majority is track only, so you can't go straight. So route choices are, are really that's the real key, I say, on a long distance. And you, the route choices will be, you know, way, way, way wider than you'll ever get in a foot orienteering, and it might be backwards. And um, so, yeah, it's kind of a little like sprint orienteering in that respect where you obviously you can't run through a building, so you've got to work out how you're going to go around it. Um, similar sort of skills in MTBO where, you, you know, you can't, can't go the direct follow the purple line you've got to really look for the ways right round and yeah so yeah when you describe it like that it does sound exactly like sprint orienteering but because the context the the environment you're in is so different um a lot of people wouldn't have um, connected those two quite so clearly 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I've, I've seen a bit of the mapping and the trails show riding speed and, and riding surface. Could you cover that a little bit and how you interpret that and what are the, the good points and the bad points about uh, mapping there? Because like any kind of orienteering, you have to approximate to some degree. And this seems like such a critical part of the sport that um, I wonder what it uh, is like from your perspective. Um, yeah, so the, the, the tracks are mapped um, according to their size, basically small ones and big ones. So there's sort of, you have a, a thicker and a thinner line. And then there's four classes or four gradings of rideability ranging from really fast, which would be like an asphalt surface or um, a really smooth gravel road, um, right down to um, what we call a dotty track, which is so very very short dashes, um, which would indicate where you know, even the best of riders will probably be having to get off and walk, and it will be slow. So a really rocky um, track or, um, yeah, somewhere, certainly an average or an intermediate rider would be probably walking most of it. And then there's the you sort of a, a, a longer dash and a shorter dash um, track. So yeah, it's the dash length which, which indicates the the rideability and so that's but it's it's quite it's all relative to the area you're in so a dotty track on one map might be a, um you know a, sort of a faster track on another track i mean if, if the tracks in the area are generally very very fast then they'll kind of you know only a slightly slow one might be would be marked as a what would be regarded as really bad track on or quite a good track on another map so yeah it's um you kind of when you like if it's a major competition you'll have a model area so you'll get a feel for how they've mapped what grade of track yeah that's exactly what i was going to ask it sounded yeah. like um that that problem is really best solved by by model maps because it, it, it's yeah. kind of inevitable that and there's actually an advantage to having mapping specialized to a certain area to some degree and so the model map kind of solves that uh, downside of you not really knowing if you're not a local yeah that's right yep and 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 i guess as when you you start a course you'll i personally would you know as i start riding i'm not kind of looking at all the tracks and oh yeah okay that's a that's what a, a short dash track looks like that's what a long dash track looks like and kind of store that in the memory bank for a bit later on kind of thing so yeah. Yep. Cool. That that makes um yeah a lot more sense now. So you, you've you've done um, a lot of races overseas and had some really successful times at uh, world world champs. What on, on your travels? Which kind of terrain types um, or, or countries have been have pro provided the most interesting mountain bike orienteering for you? Um. Well, it's it's probably the Central European, so Czech Republic. They have some really good events there, um, huge events. We went to like a a regional championship event. There was about five hundred people there um, competing. Oh, wow, it's really exposed. Um, and what was even more amazing was in the they had a few different uh, like a woman's twenty one E A B and C or something, but they were over a hundred women's 21 riders which is kind of unheard of here on this side of the globe um so yeah czech republic's really good and it's a really popular sport there poland um done quite a bit in poland as well um they have some great areas australia is actually fantastic in terms of the terrain that they have it's unfortunately it's not a very big sport and it's sort of generally the the, the people doing it are quite old <laughs> um but um and yeah sweden's they're getting into it france is great so, it's so all what quite makes different. those terrains in eastern europe so um so interesting is it just a big sport there because the culture has exploded around it or is the terrain um, quite suitable yeah the terrain so they have a lot of forests close to big towns and cities and it's all unlike new zealand the forest every the forest is open everyone goes walking in the forest so there's tracks everywhere, and that's what makes it. And they're not like in a big grid, like say in Woodhill. Um, it's far more dense track network, and they're all over the place. People cutting corners here and there, or going around this, that, and the next thing. Um, so yeah, I think it's just public use of forests has made 
which is much, yeah, just so much higher. And the forests aren't as dense and thick as, say, New Zealand native bush or anything. Um, but yeah, it's just, I think it's, that's probably the best thing about those kind of areas is that the, um, it's, it's the density of the track network. That's what makes the it interesting. It's, you know, a place with only a couple of tracks is not very exciting, obviously, but when you get a really complex maze of them, it's good, good fun. Mm, yeah, yeah, that makes sense now. Yeah. Cool. Well, I hope that was a good um, introduction for those that haven't um, done the sport yet or have, yeah, maybe only done something local. Um, have you got any tips for people to kind of get involved? Are there some things that you wish you had uh, done first when you uh, were just exposed to the sport? Um, oh, I think the, the biggest thing would be to get yourself a decent map board. It's um, you pretty, like, if you really want to give it a go, anything will do. But um, once you start to do some races, you probably want to try and get a proper map board that doesn't, you know, fall down or fall off your handlebars and um, that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, just get out and try it. It's... Um, you know, I think, unfortunately, yeah, New Zealand's not the greatest place for it, to be honest, um, just because of restrictions on land use and, and forest access. And and like I was saying, you don't have that. There's some there's some exceptions, but generally not the not the areas with really dense networks. But you can make a lot out of a small area. And, of course, with Sport Ident and stuff, you can do lots of loopy courses and map flips and that sort of stuff. So, but, yeah, it's, um, yeah, give it a go and, it's and, and I think for orienteers who kind of poo poo it a bit, they should put their money where their mouth is and actually try it, and then they'll find it's it's a little trickier than it sounds, <laughs> trickier than it looks on a map. And um, yeah. it's I think it's good good training for just your general navigation skills. And yeah, so definitely recommend it. Cool. Thanks, Makiga. Cool. No worries. Cool. So are you tempted? Yeah, I um. I should actually get out there, I reckon. Um, I've asked uh, a few people about it, and I was talking to Graham, actually, Graham Reed down in Christchurch here, who he sells that boards and, and that, um, and he was showing me his system of, here's a magnet on his map board that keeps his location where he's going, which, yeah, I thought was really smart. That's sort of like thumbing the map as you as you go for um, foot orientation, which is obviously harder when you have to have two hands on the, on the handlebars. But yeah, I can't say I've ever, ever tried it yet. Yep. Yeah, I gave it a go a few seasons back. I uh, did a North Island Championships and uh, National Championships. And um, that was fun, especially the, the end of a hard season of running to then go and um, do some biking and change the stress on the body a little bit. And the fitness um, carried through quite well. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a really good way to, to end the season um, on that occasion. Uh, but I haven't had a mountain bike since then, so um, I, yeah, it's not something I've uh, repeated. Um, have you done ski orienteering though? There is a map um, in the South Island close to you. Yes, I've done that. I've done that twice now, um, and I guess it is reasonably similar. Where you've just got a, a track network, um, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and one one thing I thought of. Uh, with that talk with Marquita, it was actually um, how she mentioned in the inception, you could, there were controls that were off track. And she talked about how Australia had some good terrain for it. And I thought that um, that would actually have a really good opportunity for those off track, off track controls. It sounds like they maybe don't do it anymore, but I was just picturing on those hard surfaces in, in Australia, you could really, really keep riding um, quite a bit off track. Yeah, stay stay on the bike, on, on the hard ground. I recall when um, Tim Robertson won uh, the junior mountain bike um, orienteering championships, he was getting off the bike a lot, actually. I can't recall where it was raced, but um, he said that he did a lot of running and um, contributes some of that to uh, obviously the the victories there. Um, He was very confident getting off the bike and, and running with it through the terrain. You weren't allowed to ride the bike through the terrain, but you could you could run. So you'd jump from one trail to the next. And, uh, you know, he's, he's very skillful with, with the map, with these quick decisions. And, um, yeah, that was that was pretty interesting. He said he was running a lot. Um, and it doesn't often happen that way. And maybe it takes um, an orienteer like Tim, who's not 
um, like a really a pure mountain bike orienteer and comes comes at um, mountain bike orienteering from a photo perspective to um, break the mold then. I'm not sure how many other people were doing as much running as he did. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, slightly different approach. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so you've brought some topics along today. Um, but what's the first thing that uh, you, you found um, interesting that's on your mind? Yeah, so this actually slightly relates to, to the mountain bike orienteering. I just found, um, I'm sure it's it's quite old, but this map memory game that's hosted on the Catching Features website. Um, yeah, so that's a map of, of, it's just a track network essentially, and it gives you one leg, um, one leg to look at. Oh. Cool. There we go. So there's one leg, a, a start and a, and a control, and you have to look at it. Um, you can sort of give yourself, I guess, 10 seconds or whatever, sort of up, up to you um, how you use this tool. Um, and you just study the map briefly, and then if you click, uh, and so you might sort of plan your route choice. So say from this one, you, know, you might go left at the first junction and then right, then yeah another dog leg and if you click go now you're in the map and you've got arrows to um to click and so you're trying to remember what you what you had planned yeah and now it shows you yeah and that shows where you are so i guess you try to um i see okay try to do a whole whole leg Just by memory, which can be can be quite tricky, especially with some of these maps. They're they're quite complex. Mm. See, yeah, I've actually forgotten how this is orientated. So I think you need the compass, um, probably something like that in the corner, because I couldn't tell which way that was uh, on the trail. So, like the first time when you click go, it's always orientated north, yeah. and then it changes. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's a new tool. That's very relevant for both ski and uh, mountain bike orienteering, and yeah, also to some degree to sprint, where you are dealing with these very discrete decisions. And in, instead of imagining the trails, you're just imagining the buildings and anything else impossible. Yeah, that's exactly where my mind went to as well. Was actually this could be relevant for for sprint too. Cool, and it's got a lot of. Um, preset maps in there so there's a, a lot of variation that's one thing i noticed with the original root choice game website is that there was actually pretty limited there was a lot of repeating i think and after you'd played it for half an hour um, you kind of weren't seeing anything too new whereas there's a lot of variation <laughs> a lot of different combinations so that's quite challenging Cool. Yeah, th that's interesting, and yeah, it's good that we have these these tools to do things that um, we can work on when we're tired from training, or we're sick, or injured, or or something. So, um, catchingfeatures.com for uh, for this game. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then another thing that happened recently was the ultra long hosted the Hogsback. Um, by Ucock um, with help from Papo. And this was a bit of a special edition this year. Um, it was a traverse, so start and finish in two different locations. And it made for a little bit of a funny map. Yeah, so I was kind of expecting there to be uh, a map segment in between that you'd extended the orienteering map, which I was really looking forward to. but. Uh, instead, you just threw in the the topo map. H how big is the the gap between the two maps? Two kilometers or something? Yeah. So the scale there it, it changes, and we see the approx um, after the scale on the on the topo map. Um, so it was it was a bit rough, but it sort of it just got you from from one end of, of the Hogsback map to the to the start of the Castle Hill forest map 
Cool. And that's a really interesting way to finish a long race when your brain's already quite tired and you have some very technical uh, forest orienteering at the end. Yeah, for sure. And also I found it really tough. This map, you have to be really aggressive to push through the, the sort of jungle, um, jungle-like terrain. And when you're really tired um, after, you know, you're already running for maybe 90 minutes before you even get to the start triangle, it's really hard to to sort of attack the terrain like that. Um, and so that was, that was quite draining. Um, and I did make a few mistakes in this last bit, but I'm sure other people did too. Yeah, that's pretty ruthless straight up the hill to 18 where it is very dense and the navigation uh, is actually quite tricky for those first few. Very challenging once you're uh, getting fatigued. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Cool, and we have some tracking uh, for this as well. Um, I'm interested to ask a few questions, uh, but mm -hmm. is there anything that stood out to you that was uh, particularly of, of interest in this race? I quite enjoyed um, the series of from five to eight, some short legs on the side of Hogsback there. Um, and this was a mess start, is that right? No, it was no, not a mess okay. start. It's synchronized. Okay. It's normal. Yeah. Right. I think in the past it has been mess start. I think some of the earlier ones. Right. Yeah. So th this is a really cool something that often gets missed off the course setting for long distance is controls really close together, a series of controls really close together. Uh, there's nothing wrong with doing that for long distance. In fact, uh, it, it forces you to change navigation style and it's really useful. Yeah. Cool. I was, uh, did, did I that, was thinking that when I, when, when I ran it, um, cause you have a lot of time to think when you're, when you're running these long races. Um, so yeah, it was just nice to have, have a sort of, a change in the middle of the race as well. Mm -hmm. It looks like uh, Matt's missed number nine here. Yeah, unfortunately, I think he, he, he fell over around eight and was a bit flustered and then uh -huh. just read straight to 10. And yeah. it is quite a classic thing with a control in the middle of two other controls that form a straight line. Yeah, yeah, easily done. Uh, that's unfortunate. Um, Let's take a look at the route choice from uh, nine to 10. So for those who are not familiar with live locks, um, it's got some, got some good features and we can quite easily uh, pivot to these different legs and see what um, directions people took. So Joe, it looks like you were fastest um, kind of going down the valley and then taking on the steep climb. Um, and it looks like you're getting out of the undergrowth fairly promptly. Do you attribute um, the fast time on that to getting out of the undergrowth a lot faster than some of these other routes where people have stayed on the hill, hillside for longer? Yeah, I do. That was exactly my plan. We just get to that flatter area where it is a lot, a lot easier to run. And then you're going to have to do some climb anyway. Um, so I was happy just to do that at the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is cool because I'm putting together some resources at the moment for teaching some of these um, theoretical orienteering principles, you know, things that you can learn um, on the couch um, and practice is also essential in the real world, but you can at least learn the foundations on the couch. And one of the exercises is identifying slow areas to avoid. And uh, this is actually a really good example. I might, I might try to steal this leg here because we get pretty distracted by the contours on a leg like this. And we're wondering how to avoid the pain of the contours, but the real trap is the undergrowth. I think um, the contours kind of trade off against um, against the the distance of the leg, and it's kind of you go wider or you go go straighter to take on a bit more or less climb. But the vegetation there, especially on a slope, um, that's actually the thing to avoid on this on this particular example, and maybe the marsh as well. What was the marsh area like? The marsh wasn't too bad, but that's one of those things where it's a risk, and you you might not know it. Um, sort of what what that like what that's like. So how bad is the marsh? How bad is the dash green until you're actually there? Um, so it's probably that's also another thing that comes into it is less risk going the the easier route. Yeah, yeah, all good points. 
Cool. Um, any other really interesting leagues um, later on? They seem more like um, execution challenges towards the end here. The league 10 to 11 was sort of the main, was been the main route choice. And there were, there were quite a few variations on that, um, which I quite, mm-hmm. I quite enjoyed trying to tackle as I was walking up to number 10. Um, I definitely flip-flopped between a few different routes as I was going up there. Interesting. So it looks like Felix has run um, quite a good time on that leg. You and Matt are probably faster running speed than Felix, but he's got the fastest split. So that would suggest that the way he's executed this leg is really good. Yeah, I think staying staying up on the bridge, it's nice, it's nice running. And then it's all about sort of choosing where you're going to come off off that Hogsback Ridge um, halfway through the leg. Yeah, so it is tempting to stay on the ridge longer and get onto the trail. Felix has dropped down very steep, probably quite slow even, even though you're going downhill and then taken on a massive climb again. So interesting decision. He hasn't, if you go on the trail, you have to take more climb again to go over this final hill. So I see the appeal of the way he's done it. He's definitely cut off five contours at the end and stayed closer to the trees. Yeah, interesting rejoice. Um, That's quite cool to see. Um, You go quite wide up the river through some dense forest. And then even wider at the end. Did you think about cutting straight across through that last patch of forest in 2.11? I, I had considered that, um, but it started reason me early on that I didn't want to. Um, I was just trying to stay stay on the on the open. Um, I went through I went through a bit of green earlier on in the course on a route choice and kind of decided that I'd had enough of that um, and I was keen to just take the easy running for a bit. You can see that here. Perhaps this is the one you're, you're talking to. Um, that if you haven't learned by numbers, the number three is a good example of. Just avoiding avoiding that slow the slow areas um, number three to four as well um it's interesting those that have gone down the river i guess it's okay if you're in the riverbed although it is stony uh, but heading out out wide I, I would have definitely taken wide uh, out to the to the south on this one um yes Joe, you was the go yeah yeah, although there's definitely execution risk about getting cutting the corner too much. I almost like yeah, staying higher than what I'm following Matt Matt's route here with the yellow highlight. Yeah, he almost gets um, a bit too a bit too keen and then um, but then stays stays out to the right hand side there. So that's the that's a good idea, I think. Yeah, especially early in a race, you don't want to you can lose it. You're not going to win the race on this leg, but you can definitely lose it by taking uh, a, a risky route through the dark green like that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think that those were the main things um, of of the ultra long. The next up here, this is a a race that happened very recently at at the Oz Australian Champs um, that Makita mentioned. Um, and this is called the Orienteering Grand Prix. Um, I think this might have been the first time it's happened. And there's a few interesting things to to note on this race. So it was a, a mass start. I think the, the first 10, 10 people in the start line were, were seated. And there were actually um, – some variations on a normal mass start course. So if you just go back slightly, Dean, to number three, it's not, sadly, it's not shown on this, on this tracking, but there's actually two number three controls, a 3A and a 3B, both printed on your map, and you could choose which one you wanted to run to um, at, like, mid-race. You didn't have to choose beforehand. So that's essentially a slightly different route choice. And they were both both quite close together. Um, but if you sort of look at the GPS in detail, you can see some people turn off earlier than others. And then later on, there was another 
another split control as well where you could choose mid-race which control you wanted to go to. Right, so here's a, a diagram here that shows what's going on and it shows that you can choose either. I don't know why I've never really thought that much about this method of forking before. Has it, Have I th thrown it out with the... There is, if, if people aren't running the exact same course and it's not fair, and I've kind of thrown this out because this people get all the information to choose which route to do. And if the course is set well, then it should be very close to even anyway. Like the controls are close together and would have the same route choices to them. So this seems like quite a smart way to do mass start races with, with splits. Um, you know, in a relay, you you can you have splits because you can balance them all up at the end. But as an individual mass start uh, race without pivots, then this makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, one downside, I guess, is it's slightly messier on the map um, to read because you do have two control circles with like other labels rather than just one. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's very similar to the, the map choice that's been happening with the knockout knockout sprint, but that's where you choose before you start your race, whereas this you're choosing mid-race. Yeah, and that's a big setup for the organizers. You've got to have those cubicles set up and you have to have multiple maps printed out. And you've got these little sample maps for people to inspect before they start. And then you've got to have a full race-ready map of each of those combinations to provide them with their choice. So this maybe gets the best of both worlds. It's not any extra organizing. You've only got to put out one extra control. Everyone gets one map at the start and people split themselves up when they're out there. And I'm thinking of this for like sand dune forest. It'd be so easy to do yeah. in sand dune forest because there's very little dispersion in runnability. So you can have some controls that are um, you know, just on some knolls over to the left and some on some knolls over to the right. The leg length is the, is the same, um, but it just causes people to space out and then come back together. And you could have them even quite wide uh, in um, sand dune pine forest because you can be real precise about making sure people run the same distance. You can yeah. really, you really yeah. split them up. You can have like a big diamond shape, you know, and it's exactly the same distance. The climb is probably exactly the same because it's so flat um, and you can test run it to, to make sure, but that would be really cool to see just like the groups getting split up a little bit. Um, although I guess if you can go to either, then you can, you can still just um, follow. But I, I do think that some people are planning ahead um, to some degree that they do want to choose one over the other. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, looking forward to seeing more experiments. Uh, with splitting because mass start racing is fun um, but we all hate it when it turns into a pure running race so yeah this is quite cool yeah one one other quirk is at number 10 there you see that um the the red runner i think it's david david brownridge um you had the gps um, at number 10 or not, not later on. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so Angus runs straight through number 10. Uh -huh. And you can see when David goes through, there's actually a slight kink in his GPS trace. Yeah. Uh -huh. And that's, there's a, there was a penalty loop at number 10. If you were in the back, I think 30% of the field, you had to run this extra. Oh. Extra 40 meters, um, or, or you could choose to pull out of the race altogether. Um, which I'm not sure how effective that is really for the for the racing. Um, I just have to do a few of them to to kind of work it out properly. Were they explicit about what that was trying to incentivize? If you're on the bulletin, back to the bulletin, I think it might just be down a little bit. Here we go. There we are. So you have to punch a control in. That, that, so that's how they define it. It's a loop. It's actually a control, I think. Bottom one third of the field. Because you're kind of out the back. Or are they imagining like a bunch where 
the back half are just following and therefore it's pushing you towards the front. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm, the time I've sort of seen something like this, not a penalty one, but is the, the short shoot in um, triathlon. I don't know if you, you've followed any of that, but um, if, if there's, there's a leader at some point in the race, I think maybe after, after the swim, if you're leading, then later on the course you can choose to take a slightly shorter route um, and so it benefits you. And that adds to just some more excitement in the racing so it's not just one pack running all together the whole time all of a sudden one person mm-hmm. jumps ahead from that path and everyone else has to catch up um so it kind of adds drama but this is at the back of the race so mm-hmm. especially when there's not a huge bunch together um it probably doesn't add too much to the racing yeah i can almost imagine that incentive about moving from fourth to first being um, more of a drama pr- producer than moving from you know, the back third, just the mid pack, um, because that you're essentially running the same race, kind of following the same in each, each of those um, different situations. Uh, in um, triathlon, the swim often gets the least attention because it's earlier in the race and the amount of time you spend doing the swim is much shorter than uh, the ride, especially, and also the run. So it's definitely less, less important. Um, I don't think I'm the first <laughs> first to say that. Yes. I've not been a triathlon expert, but um, heard a few conversations, and I mean that, that. I think that's pretty close to consensus at, at this stage. So, adding this like non-linear benefit, you can be five seconds faster in your swim, but you then get a ten-second bonus. Uh, that's um, quite an interesting way of incentivizing some different tactics. You see it sometimes in uh, cycling, road racing as well, getting time benefits for. Uh, placings mm-hmm. so maybe you get a 10 second benefit in a stage to a race for being the first over the line even though it was a bunch sprint so it um yeah incentivizes some uh I guess it more risk taking and less uh, sitting back and and following until the last minute yeah, i'm excited to see yeah more experiments like this uh, in orienteering and I know my club in Auckland, uh, Northwest Orienteering, likes to play around with some of these different ideas. And I think this um, this year we're planning some some mass start style stuff, but I don't think we've included anything kind of novel like this. So maybe next year we'll um, run some mass start races with some some more novel uh, forking stuff because it is really fun and um, without having super deep fields to run relays um you know you don't want to have a field of have a, an elite field and then divide it by three um for the mass start which is what ends up happening with an elite relay you kind of want everyone starting together so i think these these things are really important and really fun yeah it'll be cool to see when the the people that have been competing tonight in this in this race over in australia come back um they might share how it went and you know some ideas for how to incorporate into new zealand um, I'll just point out again, um, back there on the bulletin is there's a title there for the the restart. So this is kind of what you're what you're talking about in the cycling race. So at seventy percent of the course distance, the race actually stopped for I think three minutes. Yeah, there we are. And if you are in the top four positions before that, you get an advantage on the people behind you. So that's like your your bonus. I see. Yeah, they are including. Right, I hadn't read that far through, but yeah, yeah. Th- th- that's right. That incentive to be from fifth um, up into the top few uh, is, is def- definitely an exciting for the spectators and the racers. Sort of make there's two sprint offs um, and then another start for the spectators to watch mm-hmm. before the the last Fast and Furious um, part of the race, which is sort of it's like doing two intervals mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah, um, like these ideas we can definitely borrow from from other sports, like thinking about elimination cycling uh, on the track mm-hmm. cycling. Uh, last the person last person gets eliminated. I know Sprint the Bay did one, an elimination race. Were you old enough to be racing um, that race? No. At Sprint the Bay. It was quite a while ago, I think. Um, and I think only the first ten or fifteen, I think it was ten only, um, got through halfway. Uh, so it was pretty pretty full on and I think I remember being 
yeah, like eight, eight or ninth, and just like looking, looking back, checking that there was no hot sprinter just behind me who was going to um, take the map. There were only ten maps in the box, basically. So you had to. Um, there was a map map change, and then you grab the new. I think I may, maybe maybe I'm making that up, but I mean that that's it. That's a good way to do it. So, yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to um, more of this, more of these innovations. It's fun. Yeah, me too. Me too. Lots of ideas to, to mm -hmm. think about there. So, Gene, had you been thinking about um, rest in your in your training recently? Yeah, I, we, Emmy and I had this discussion um, the other day, and I thought it was, was a really good one to to share here. Rest and recovery, and it kind of came up in the intro as well. Now that I've had three good weeks under my belt, my legs are starting to feel it. And yesterday morning, went out for my uh, morning easy ride. And um, actually had a slight slight mechanical issue. Um, came home to fix it, and I got home and I was like, "I'm done. <laughs> I'm not going out again." Twenty minutes in, and mm -hmm. like I'm just feeling unenthused about riding my bike. And if someone who loves riding their bike feels unenthused about riding their bike, something's going on. Yeah. And um, I use that as a quite a major indicator um, for whether I should take uh a, a day off or an easy day or an easier week um because my my capacity for training my training appetite is quite high and when i no longer have that appetite uh that's to, to me that's my body telling me that i need to rest up and now that i've realized that i have a whole lot less conflict because those are the frustrating days when you don't really want to go out but you've convinced yourself that some like moral imperative to go out that you, you're not a committed athlete if you if you don't go out um today it was in the plan stop being lazy and now i i'm just i just trim all that bullshit and it's just oh i'm feeling tired oh I'm, yeah i just skip from i'm not enthused about training to i'm feeling tired and i should um, rest or or take it take it easy or something like that so that's the way i'm thinking um, thinking about that stuff now. Do you have any any easy rules that you like to follow for um, taking uh, time off or cutting back the intensity or whatever um, you choose to trim? Yeah, um, I'm not probably as uh, conscious about it as as that, um, and maybe that's something to to add in in, in the future. Um, but definitely. I've become better at, at realizing it is just time time to take a break. Um, especially for me, I I commute most days at least um, on on my bike to uni, and those are just easy rides for me. But I can really feel it when I've um, been having maybe a few big weeks, and just every ride is like it's. Yeah, it, it, it's a lot tougher than than it should be, um, and to me, that's quite an easy sign to to say, okay, I need to have yeah a, a bit of time off, um, or at least take it easy and not have any hard training sessions this week. Um, that's kind of my my litmus test is my my easy rides. Yep, and I don't think that's unreasonable using the easy session as the indicator because I think it shows up actually very clearly, if not more clearly on the easy session sometimes if i'm feeling tired i can go out and do intervals and if i'm not on the exact same surface or the conditions are not exactly the same then it's hard if i'm two or three seconds slower per kilometer it's hard to say if that means anything or not yeah. whereas if my easy run which is almost always effortless feels effortful then that's quite a significant change but if your hard run hurts like <laughs> it always hurts anyway so yeah i think the easy runs are a good a good indicator and i think it also helps to have heart rate on it like if you're looking at your heart rate and it's low and your legs are <laughs> feeling like you're working hard then it's time it's time to have a break um and then the next part of that um my thinking on this is well what does a break it entail and um yeah i don't think there's a super clear answer but i think i've got enough experience to know that taking it easy for a few days is is good and i don't have to like freak out and have uh, no training on on the agenda. I can definitely do light training, and my body really likes it and bounces back really quite strong. And you just have to have a bit of patience. I think that 
um, feeling tired from training is, is not a disaster. It's not an emergency um, situation and it will fix itself in time. But a 24-hour block off or 48-hour block with no training doesn't guarantee full recovery. It takes time. It takes a lot of time. And it could be a whole week of feeling tired before you bounce back fully. And I think doing no training at that time doesn't really make that much sense anyway. And I don't know if it really speeds up the recovery much. Doing hard training will slow down the recovery, but doing light training, I think my body really likes it. And then I bounce back really strong. So um, we'll see if I need to do that this week or not. I felt much better in my morning ride um, today. So, you know, I'm obviously not too deep in the fatigue um, so yeah, I think that's that's something that's very interesting. And someone telling you about these rules to follow is uh, it's not that helpful if you can't recognize the sensation in your own legs. So you've got to become familiar with it. And I think sometimes a, co- a coach can help um, help to get you to look at the right things. But until you you have to sense the sensation in your own legs, um, a coach isn't going to be able to help you there, especially if they're not with you every day. So like you telling a coach, hey, I've been really struggling for the last two weeks. Uh, it's way too late then. You've got to let your coach know that uh, I've been feeling tired for the last two days. Um, heads up, like we might have to slow things down. So it still comes back to you as the athlete to, to notice quickly. Um, a coach doesn't really solve that, I don't think. Yeah, and it's, it's definitely not the easiest thing, easiest thing to do. Um, and especially when maybe... It's it's easier when you're not uh, you don't have a training a specific race goal on the horizon in the next two weeks. Um, if you're maybe a few months out and you're doing base training, um, it's yeah it can be uh, less stressful and easier to sort of take a take a step back. Yeah, and the last thing I wanted to bring up was something that's been on my mind since uh, Europe. We had an experience in Europe that was. Interesting, I think, from the perspective of someone who also organizes orienteering races. Uh, we ran out of time on, on the last few um, dev chats to get this in, but I'm, I'm still, still quite interested in this because if I continue to organize orienteering events in the future, then this is bound to happen. How do you cancel a race? And something like the ultra long in Hong's back is an interesting example because you're in an alpine environment. People are out there for a long period of time. And there's quite a big search area if something does go wrong. So um, whoever was organizing Hogsback should definitely, the Hogsback Ultra Long should definitely think about um, this. So we were in an alpine environment in Italy. We had to get the gondola up to the event center and it was at 2000 meters, the race. And we had some pretty crazy thunderstorms. And like, I don't mean there were some, some showers, like, some freezing thunderstorms came 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 through and ruined an otherwise summer day, and these things are quite normal uh, in the in the Italian Alps. Uh, the weather that comes in off the Mediterranean, and you get these uh, really intense thunderstorms uh, throughout throughout the day sometimes. And the only way off the mountain was on the gondola. The gondola got closed as soon as um, the thunderstorm got really severe. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the event organizers were in a bit of a pickle, but there is there were some large buildings up there because it's a, a active ski field and a lot of people uh, use these areas for hiking and biking during summer. So there was plenty of indoor space at the top. It's not like everyone was left out. Well, by plenty, I mean they were packed in, but I don't think there were people left out in, in the hail and the freezing rain um, unnecessary. But there were a lot of people still out on course and they managed to kind of cancel it mid-race. I hadn't even started. And it's quite a big area with not many tracks through it. There was one major road where they had organizers pull, trying to pull people off the course. Um, and two of the Kiwis actually finished their course, um, the two earlier starters. Uh, one of them was quite close to hypothermic, if, if not hypothermic, like we weren't measuring people, but... I was pretty clear at the finish that he was quite slow and um, under, you know, slow to move and not entirely um, cognitively sharp. So it was definitely, he was definitely under pressure there. Um, and it's such a tricky one because we're kind of going out into the, this environment 
and kind of committed in a number of ways when we start an orienteering course. You're going to be out of contact for some time. And at what point does it make sense to cancel an event? You've kind of already put everyone at risk. And so they, when that thunderstorm was at its worst is when they cancelled it and pretty much find out from then on. And so half the field didn't get to start, even though the afternoon was fine. And everyone who was put at risk, you know, probably got shortened. Their, their, their time in the hail probably got shortened to some degree. But yeah, am I, am I making sense so far? Is this um, something that you see as a, as a major risk as someone who's been involved in organizing some races yourself? Yeah, definitely, especially with the with the web changing like that. Um, but like we say, it's quite hard because, yeah, the risk has sort of already happened when you when you start the event. Um, it definitely came up with the ultra long, and I think it might be reviewed um, by by the organisers in the coming coming months. Um, they were lucky to have have reasonable weather for for that day, but in an environment like that, it could be. It could be quite bad, and like you say, when it's over a large area, um, and it's quite hard to search for people. Yeah, that can become quite, quite important. Yeah, quite, quite, quite hard. And I think it's my, my personal opinion on this is that the like preventing people from going into the environment without the right gear, you know, given the chance of thunderstorms, is probably a more effective way to deal with the issue than like panicking at the last moment and i'm not to say the organizers panicked or not but they like they certainly um were i, I imagine under pressure because you've got two thousand people like, most of two thousand people out uh in the terrain and well, i would certainly be um, concerned if i was the organizer of something bad happening um, given the lightning and stuff that was like, really close so yeah i just wonder if it like if, if it's on the forecast, the real the only the, the only effective way to deal with it is to ensure that people can only start with if they've got like a thermal and a rain jacket, which a thermal's definitely been enforced on us at orienteering before, and people found that quite jarring actually because orienteering is short activity and we're not used to having um, compulsory gear. And people were kind of complaining at the time that this was an overreaction. I never took that thermal off. It was cold. <laughs> it was very cold um, that day. So maybe that's the only way to do it. Like waiting until it's like seriously bad and then trying to pull everyone off the course. I, I just didn't seem so ineffective to me. There were still people out there freezing. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I, I do sort of see that that will sort of likely be the future is you'll be running with compulsory gear and maybe you know a small a small backpack or something uh, especially for for like those those longer races um where the weather is likely likely to get bad um yeah I long feel race like alpine environment it, it should be at least said that you should come to the event with this gear because at any moment we might make it required that's that seems totally reasonable um to me and it it doesn't create this other issue of now the all these people who didn't get to start and the race organizers kind of claimed victory like ah yes we've prevented a, we've prevented this um everyone who was at risk and like everyone who wanted to run in the afternoon could have done so fine yeah because the weather was fine and so many people in the morning were already put at risk so it didn't really seem like a resolution to me it's certainly not not a satisfactory one it does also um, make sort of that decision easier, say, for um, an event like the Ultralong, when you've got people, you know, the people flying down from Auckland and Wellington for for that race. Um, on the morning, if it is bad weather and people haven't brought the compulsory gear, um, it's a pretty hard decision to, to cancel um a race like that when people travel from all over new zealand whereas if if you had said here's a compulsory gear list um and so you can be confident that they will be safe um yeah it's, it still depends on the scale of the weather but that kind of yeah makes that decision a little bit easier as well yeah it pushes 
pushes the there's always a level of weather where you can't go out otherwise um at, at all and maybe this thunderstorm was at that um level anyway but like prevention <laughs> yeah prevention like given the weather forecast which was for likely thunderstorms um you probably should be sending people out on course with this gear anyway and as an organizer you know you're you're semi-responsible for these people so you kind of want anything to go wrong to be minimized and yeah, cancelling mid-race doesn't <laughs> exhume you from responsibility um, you still sent them out there so yeah that's it's definitely a tricky one but I, yeah I, I think i see compulsory gear should probably um, be more commonplace uh, in orienteering um, and i don't mean in in Auckland, running in, in Woodhull in Auckland. I mean, the weather's so so mild here, but the, like the South Island and especially the Canterbury foothills, yeah, for sure, um, that can get in, in winter is, is such a rapidly changing environment from sunny to snowing really quickly. Yeah. Another thing I'd have wondered is whether um, like compulsory GPS tracking could could come in. Um, you know, if you if you are injured and and you can't get out at, you know, these are big areas to, to search, even on maybe a, a Woodhill race or something like that. Um, that's possibly, a, yeah. Yeah, uh, maybe in 10, in 10 years' time, if the GPSs are, are cheap, um, then you can you know, check that people start with a whistle. Okay. How about check that they start with like a $10 GPS? Yeah. Something that just has to ping every. Um, five minutes or 10 minutes even. I mean, just enough to prevent um, a massive search and rescue um, effort. You know, you can go straight to the source that were pinged 10 minutes ago and the search area is quite small um, and you know whether they're on course or off course. I mean, that's, that's terrifying from an organizer's perspective. If the weather's turning bad and you don't know where to look for somebody and the clock is essentially ticking on the weather or on daylight hours, um, hopefully they get cheap enough that we can do that. I mean, it really makes so much more sense than uh, the whistle situation. I don't know how many people have ever used a whistle. I'm sure some people, if you happen to, you know, injure yourself reasonably close, um, close by, yeah, I guess you can get someone's attention. Um, it's, it seems like very, very rare. I don't know. Have you ever, ever used a whistle or any, or known anyone who has used a whistle? No, I haven't heard of any any stories about whistles here. Yeah, I've never used one uh, myself, and after like all the orienteering that I've done, um, I just have, have never come across a situation um, where I would where it would have been needed. Um, so it's definitely for those those rare events where you like I don't know break a knee somewhere and you can't really can't move yourself out of the, out of where you are and have to be found. So it's really so the whistle, in my view, is, is about the, the search being being found, and uh, the GPS is so much better yeah. uh, than than the whistle. So, um, if you realize, if you agree that that's what the goal of the whistle is, is um, to to help you be found when you can't move, uh, then yeah, yeah, so that, that that'd be interesting. It'd be cool in ten years' time because I definitely feel like each time we run an event, there's this this risk of something going really wrong, and then all the organizers being found like hopelessly incompetent because that's always what happens when there's an accident. Like it always comes down to suddenly the standards of what is required, like lift on everyone. Um, when we're kind of all, at least most of us knowingly going into an environment where I'd be happy to, to sign a waiver every time I start uh, because I know, I know it's risky and I know the risks are unlikely, but can be, kind of severe. I mean, it's not like downhill mountain biking where I'm sure there's like waivers were <laughs> invented for downhill mountain biking, but um, yeah, what, what responsibility should be put on the uh, competitor? Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know if we're that explicit about that in orienteering in New Zealand. No, I don't think so. Um, one thing I found is that we did a, a first aid course last year, I think, and the organizer of that was quite surprised. We're doing it with the orienteering club, um, and they were always surprised to sort of learn about 
what we do in orienteering. Like they were assuming that we would be taking out an emergency blanket um, every time and we'd have a phone with us and we're trying to explain that, well, sometimes you, you might not have phone signal anyway. And yeah, it's definitely like compared to some other, other races, especially like adventure racing. Um, I know they've, they always have those big ones. They've got trackers and they're compulsory and you get penalized if you mm. leave it at a control point, which Avea did at the world champs. Um, last week, um, yeah, that's quite a different standard, which mm-hmm. might might be changing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm sure um, a lot of people who are into health and safety would <laughs> be squawking at what we're doing, and I, I'm not convinced that's because what we're doing is too risky. I just think everything else has um, really tightened up. Um, many, many other sports have really tightened up, and I'm totally happy to run a sport where. Um, and again, this is like my personal opinion and nothing to do with how the, what my club is happy to do. But personally, I'm happy to be um, at risk. I do things every weekend. I try to find like the gnarliest, the most remote single trail I can get my hands on. And um, I don't really tell anyone where I'm going because I change my mind out on the trail all the time. Um, you know, my, my girlfriend probably has that vague idea where I'm going, but I, mean, I just... That, that that's what I like doing exploring <laughs> you can't tell someone where you're going to go and explore somewhere um unfamiliar uh, before you've explored explored the area so yeah yeah anyway um it will be interesting and as an organizer I'm yeah, definitely interested in hearing other people's thoughts on on some of how we can do things a little bit better and not you know send send people out into the terrain um, at risk when they're um, not expecting it. Um, I don't want to be in the situation where I have to cancel an event knowing I've already put everyone uh, at risk. And then you get the worst of both worlds where the event gets cancelled for everyone who could have enjoyed it and you still sent half the people out in, into the into the thunder and lightning. Yeah. Yeah, that does sound like the worst of both worlds. Yeah, cool. Well, uh, uh, what have you got? Um Coming up in, in the in the short term, um, you've got you've just ha- had a race. You said you're doing some some road racing. Is there a race you're working uh, towards specifically? Yeah, in the start of October, there's so in a few days' time for me. Um, there's the New Zealand Road Relays Championships. Um, it's being held down here in Christchurch, and there's there's a couple of orienteers competing at that. Um, but that's that's just a, a purely road road course um and then i'm also involved with some planning of the south island champs so um that's sort of happening in the background too yeah cool cool well good luck with the training and um looking forward to catching up next time you are co-hosting with me see you Jim. if you liked the show please support it by sharing this podcast with one person who would benefit from it The best place to find more content like this is at genebeverage.nz where you can find years of training blogs, race reports, podcasts and coaching videos. If you don't want to miss future episodes, I recommend subscribing to my newsletter by visiting genebeverage.nz or by following on social media, Perfect Flow on Facebook and genebeverage on Instagram. For Q&A, send messages to nav at perfectflow.nz.